And good evening, everyone. Welcome to the February 2021 edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, tonight we're paying tribute to a wonderful activist and a human being who passed away last month after losing a battle with cancer. There's many reasons to celebrate the life of Ken Jones this month. He's a hero to recognize during Black History Month, and he was an activist who railed against racial discrimination within the LGBT community in a time when it definitely wasn't popular to do so. He was simply a wonderful human being. In 2017, I sat down with Ken to talk about his life and his experience, both as a gay man and an African-American man, a veteran of the military and a survivor of the AIDS epidemic. All of the issues that he was fighting for in the 1970s are issues that we're facing today. So stay with us. My conversation with Ken Jones is coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, February 28th, 2021. This is Greg Morali with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of February 28th, 2021. Last week, the bassist for the musical group Imagine Dragons, Ben McKee, who grew up in Forestville and graduated from El Molino High School, announced that he's going to be donating $1,000 a day to a different community organization for one full year. McKee wrote on Twitter, this past year has been particularly challenging for a lot of people. The organizations that support and protect the most vulnerable of us have been pushed beyond their limits. I've set aside $365,000, and over the next year, I will give away $1,000 a day. And he's starting with two organizations here in Sonoma County. He announced Sonoma County's Positive Images, which mentors LGBTQA youth, and TLC Child and Family Services, a foster family and adoption agency based in Sebastopol, will be the recipients of his first two donations. Jessica Carroll, program director for Positive Images, said that she was blown away by Ben's generous gift to the organization. She described the donation as incredible, especially when someone with a public forum uses it to create visibility for a cause they care about. Ben's donation will help Positive Images create a new position that will help it grow and support its programming for queer and trans youth here in Sonoma County. McKee added to his quote, saying that life has been incredibly generous. Never did he think his journey would take him from a dead-end dirt road in a tiny town in Northern California to some of the biggest stages in front of the best fans and as a member of one of the largest, most successful bands in the world. The band has won three American Music Awards, nine Billboard Music Awards, and one Grammy Award. And last week, Apple CEO Tim Cook shared a message on Twitter reiterating Apple's strong support for the passage of the Equality Act and encouraging Congress to come together and get it done. The Equality Act, known as House Resolution 5, would prohibit discrimination based on sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation in all states, and has been in the works since 2015. Now more than 600 organizations have backed the Equality Act, and the Human Rights Campaign says public support of the bill is over 80%. The nonpartisan Religion Research Institute found that national support for the Equality Act topped 83%, which includes a majority of Democrats, Republicans, and Independents. According to the Human Rights Campaign, the Equality Act would provide consistent and explicit anti-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people across key areas of life, including employment, housing, credit, education, public spaces and services, and federally funded programming. An LGBTQ Nation reports that the Biden administration has reportedly been in talks with the American Civil Liberties Union about undertaking a plan that will allow agencies in the United States government to allow an X as an option as a gender marker on federal identification documents. That would mean transgender and non-binary, as well as intersexed Americans, could get a gender-neutral mark on U.S. passports, Social Security cards, and other forms of identification Issued by the federal government, President Biden has said he supports this change. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. I met Ken Jones four years ago when the ABC miniseries When We Rise first aired. Ken's story is featured in the miniseries and was one I had never heard. He arrived in San Francisco while still serving in our country's Navy. He came out as a gay man at a time when there was great risk for active-duty military personnel. Ken also faced outright racism within the gay community. He fought this racism using his amazing personality, persistence, and optimism. 
Ken worked with Gilbert Baker to create the first rainbow flag, and later in his life, Ken served on the Citizens Review Board for the BART Police Department following the shooting of Oscar Grant. He served not to beat up the police, but to make them better. I can't think of a better way to celebrate Black History Month than to celebrate the life of Ken Jones. Here's my conversation with him from 2017. Thank you so much, Greg. What a treat to have you here. And, of course, we learned some of your story when we were watching the miniseries When We Rise, which aired on ABC earlier this year. And it picked up your life when you were in the Navy. But tell us about where you grew up and what it was like when you realized you were gay. Well, it's an interesting question, Greg. To put this into perspective, we're talking about the 50s. I'm not sure that the word gay was used. I'm not even sure homosexual was used. It was just not something that was ever, ever talked about. I think my first concern, uh, I was a sophomore in high school, and i just run the 50-yard dash in record time, and the person who came in second turned to me in front of the entire group and said, you run just like a girl. And he kind of put his hands up in the air and went trotting off like we see young girls um, run. And you know, Greg, my, I was never the same child. My life really changed. I felt exposed. I felt vulnerable. I felt lost. Mm. But I didn't know anything about gay. I just knew this is really effed up. You know what I mean? Sure. And where was this in the country? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Patterson, New Jersey which is about eight minutes across the George Washington Bridge into New York City. So I really grew up in New York. Uh, it was kind of the place to go, uh, to hang out. Our school took uh, at least two trips to the big city every quarter. So uh, New York was kind of the place to run around. Mm-hmm. And also the first place that I began to see young kids like me, who uh, were having fun growing up and making the best of what they could in the environment that they were. Right, right. Well, the 50s and 60s, as you mentioned, I mean, that was not a time when being gay was even really talked about. Uh, And there were absolutely no images. I've since read some books that could have shed light on it, but it was... uh, You know, we were even cautious in the old days of checking out books at libraries that people might see that you were interested in the subject. Isn't that outrageous? Yeah. I mean, it must have been really difficult, too. What messaging did you get from your church? Were you hearing messaging at that time about gay people? Absolutely none, Greg. No. Absolutely nothing. I guess that's better than at least hearing condemning messages that, you know, so many churches are spewing today. That's true. That's true. I, I, we had a good fortune. I, again, I grew up in Patterson, New Jersey. And when Kennedy was running for Congress, that's uh, Jack, President JFK, was running for the Congress, he visited our church. And I, I, I thought that was kind of uh, significant. The church had always been a place of... Uh, kind of organizing and um, wow. yeah, I, I, it had a, a tremendous impact on me indirectly, if that makes sense. Sure. That must have been quite an experience, particularly looking back now, uh, having seen him there in your church. It is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. And when did you enter the military? I entered in 1969. I graduated from high school in 1967. And between 67 and 69, I must have had at least 18 jobs. No. <laughs> <laughs> to put it into perspective, Greg, I had these great jobs. You know, I was actually the, uh, in the old days, they called them Girl Fridays. But I was the assistant to the advertising director of Town & Country magazine. Really? Yeah. I mean, my mother was a caterer. And so she had significant uh, contacts in New York of movers and shakers. So uh, I had a great job. And being in New York, I felt compelled to have the two martini lunch. That's kind of the image of TV in the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. You weren't living unless you had 
a two martini lunch. Of course. Well, if you're 17 or 18 and you have a two martini lunch, you're not going to be very effective the next three hours at work. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> but I had a great time and they were wonderful experiences. And so what drew you into the military? Was it the draft or did you go voluntarily? Uh, I, needed to, I needed something to happen with my life. Um, I think my parents had tried just everything to try and direct me in some path. Um, to put this in perspective, when we're going to go back to the kid telling me that I ran like a, a little girl, from that moment I was full of self-hatred, self-loathing, I just had no ambition, I had no life, I had no direction. And mm -hmm. that's part of the problem, Greg, when you grow up primarily an only child. You don't have someone to process this stuff and say, you know, maybe you're taking it too serious. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was a pretty helpless, lost, and full of despair. And uh, for me, the Navy was it. You know, once you get through boot camp, boot camp was totally uh, hell. But it had its purpose. And its purpose was to strip all of me out of this and become the sailor, which is, uh, I really enjoyed. There's something about being at sea, being in the company of other men, uh, doing important work, and partying when you come into the home port that I found just uh, really exciting. And I would have liked to have stayed in the Navy forever, but uh, I was kind of, at any moment, I could be busted for being gay or even associating with known homosexuals, and I would receive a dishonorable discharge. Well, you know, Greg, I had three good conduct medals. Uh, 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 you know, and dishonorable discharge just wasn't in the making. So I decided to get out while I could with an honorable discharge and all of my good conduct medals. Wonderful. And in the miniseries, it showed, you know, just a very brief glimpse, relatively speaking, into your life in the military and a relationship. Did you meet a lot of gay men while you were serving? Um, no one was out. No one would ever, ever, even with your closest associates, you would never say, I am gay. Right. Too risky. But since I've been out of the military and in San Francisco, I've seen four or five faces that I recognize from uh, military days, which is kind of odd because, you know, it's such you're at war and uh, serving. You're at such risk. You're so vulnerable. And there's this intimacy that forms with other people who are sharing this experience with you. Um, I and Michael, we didn't think we were gay, Greg. Hmm. We just thought that we were two guys who had met our life partners. We were in love. And we were making plans to spend the rest of our lives together. Wow. Well, it, I mean, that's, that's how it works, right? You, don't, you, may not, you may not connect with the word, but you know who you love. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, you came to San Francisco at a time when, you know, the movement was really just getting started. And as inclusive as I think we try to be, there was a lot of racism even within the gay community, a lot of exclusion. Talk about your experience with that. It was a little jarring for me because I had a stereotype of uh, liberal San Francisco progressives all under one roof. And um, I think during that time we were having a national discussion. Jesse Jackson was running for president and he had created what's called the Rainbow Coalition. And now we would call it kind of the rise and resist movement. It's about people sharing, even when they're not at risk, they stand up for others. Mm -hmm. That we're all in this together. And that the bigger we can make the rainbow, the more power we have, the more influence we have, uh, the more uh, changing the world becomes a reality. Mm -hmm. And so I was a little bit surprised um, when I first felt the pangs of racism in the Castro. And in the 60s, even the Castro was, it was a strange entity. Uh, 
it wasn't the normal hangout of gay men. It was kind of gay men who had left Polk Street or were not particularly comfortable in the south of marketplaces. And um, there were a couple of places you get in, no problem. There were others that uh, would require you to show more identification than you would possibly have with you going to a bar, uh, to ask for four or five pieces of ID, and then to have those discredited because maybe your mustache isn't right, or maybe uh, this isn't right. It was an important moment for me and I think other gay men of color. Uh, Greg, we were coming at it. We had just received word as young gay men that we were young, gifted, and black. And we were proud, and uh, we just heard Jesse Jackson talking about his dream. And so we were the generation that bought into the dream and thoroughly expected to be full participants in North American life, hope, and opportunity, and to be shut out of a bar um, was unacceptable. Yeah to us, and by this time, enough of these young, black, gay kids were also studying law. And so we knew that, you know, buddy, you can't do this very much often, Mm -hmm. very much longer. And so we did form a boycott with uh, a group called the Black and White Men Together of San Francisco. They were really instrumental in providing the bodies that would be outside of the bars uh, with picket signs. And uh, I can even remember a couple of bars where people were ignoring our picket signs and we laid our bodies down on the ground and made them step over us to get into the bar to have a good time. Mm -hmm. And it's that kind of warfare that, uh, you know, it's been a slow haul, Greg, and I have to tell you, there's still moments when I'm in the Castro, that I feel not so connected. Uh, We were recently talking about the Gilbert Baker gathering, which was really powerful. And as I was looking at the photographs afterwards, I went, oh my God, I look like I'm the only man of color in the whole uh, demonstration. So there are still moments where we know that there is work that we have to do. Yeah, I I agree with you. Um, You know, I came out pretty late in life. Uh, I always knew I was gay, but I didn't, because I worked in law enforcement, wasn't really able to come out until 2004. And I never went to the Castro, but I do remember going there with a friend the first time and visiting the pendulum, doing the Castro crawl, but being introduced to the pendulum. And I thought, (laughs) well, why is there one bar that is just sort of the unofficial dedicated place for African-American men to go and everybody else goes to the others? for, yeah. an, for a community that is supposed to be standing up for everything that's inclusive and everything that that stands for, I was surprised in 2004 about how much separation there was. And then, of course, there was that whole controversy about the owner of the bar closing it down because he didn't want it identified as a black bar. Crazy to me. But I agree with you. I think there still is. That's, I think that's a big struggle that we still have in our community. Uh, and I was there that night. Uh, and I agree with you. There was not a lot of diversity in that crowd. It's pretty white. Well, it just shows how much more work we have to do. That's for sure. Yeah, we do. Now you yeah, came. I mean, there's been tremendous progress, Greg. But then the other part, and this is now I'm 66, and I'm starting to develop a little bit of wisdom, and uh, I'm looking back at that Equal Rights Amendment that we all were just sure that this was the legislation that was going to do it. And what I have learned, Greg, is that the legislation cannot change people's hearts. People's hearts change when we are present, when we are authentic, and when we are transparent. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. The one thing I've learned a lot, and and really it was sort of the foundation for my getting the guts to finally come out was what I used to hear from Matthew Shepard's mom, Judy Shepard. She was an advocate for the hate crimes legislation, but she said that's not what's going to change this world. It's not going to be a law that's going to cause people to think differently. It's going to be coming out and sharing your stories. 
And that's how we change minds and hearts. Yes. For sure. Yes. You and Greg, a, that's what I'm hoping we have done with When We Rise, is to begin a conversation to change people's hearts. Well, it's a powerful tool for that, for sure. Uh, both in terms of, of telling a story, but also making visible some amazing people who were at the very beginning of this incredible civil rights movement. You had a chance to meet some of these folks. I want to start with Jose Saria. Tell me about Jose. What did he teach you? Our relationship was a little different than we saw in the movie. Jose was a very good friend of a very good friend of mine. And so when I saw him, he was not decked out in his, uh, in her shining armor, but just another older gay man who had a heart of bringing people together and making everyone just feel comfortable. He kind of took me under his wings and just made sure that I knew enough people, showed me some problem areas. Uh, These are the people you want to watch out for, hon, and this is uh, what you do and you don't do. Yeah, yeah, it was very, very kind of almost motherly, welcoming you to his city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, and he made it He made it his city, right? Uh, yes, he did. <laughs> he really did. Uh, and he was also a military vet. That's correct. Did you feel some connection with that as well? I, I did subsequently, yeah. And so was Harvey Milk. Right. Yeah. Well, and Gilbert Baker, too. He served in the Army. Uh, And you were good friends with him. Talk about your relationship. Uh, Gilbert and I were temporary workers in a typing pool. And uh, he was really there to do his work for uh, the parade committee. Um, He was kind of a person that you didn't necessarily accomplished much for us during the day, but he certainly did a lot for the parade. And he was one of the people who were instrumental in encouraging me to come to a parade organizing meeting. And so I am always so grateful now for that experience. You know, I saw him at the Castro Street Theater uh, during the screening, and afterwards we embraced in the hallway and we were both crying a little and we embraced and he whispered in my ear and he said you know we made it girl we did this and um that's that's the memory i have that was his gift to me and it's kind of almost where my relationship with him started we did this that's a beautiful tribute i loved when you told me first told me that story and i really loved hearing it again So talk about being part of that organizing committee. Um, But, you know, Greg, I was, again, the piece of chocolate in a sugar bowl (laughs) and kind of forced into a leadership position. And uh, it's tremendously stressful. It's it's, um, stressful, and it also encouraged me to hone my skills around multicultural coalition building. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. That's the expression we use. And when we find ourselves in difficult situations, we're there for a purpose. And mine really was to begin to, to, to talk about multiculturalism and how we could do it in San Francisco. What do you think you were able to teach the people that you were talking to? Number one is that I lead with love, Greg. I think anyone who ever has worked with me will talk to you about my leadership with my heart. I'm really a touchy-feely kind of guy. And I just want to know that you feel okay mm-hmm. and I'm okay. So I spend a lot of time in just nurturing people and at the same time teaching um, and at the same time being an example of how we do this thing. In terms of multicultural diversity, and I find this very interesting, Greg, in the early days of the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, and I was one of the first uh, paid staff at that foundation, we did a number of diversity workshops, multicultural workshops, as we began to make that 
and this turning into a broader discussion, mm -hmm. but we were kind of a ragtag group of gay activists, and all of a sudden, as gay activists, we were being challenged around being gay in that environment because it impacted people who were also not gay. And so we found ourselves needing to make room for the participation of women, and we needed to make room for the broader participation of uh, people of color and the disabled community. And Greg, we spent what seems like a great deal of time working on multiculturalism, but two Sundays ago, a group of eight of us who went through that experience, and this is my point, when you go through that kind of experience, it's for the moment, but it lasts forever. Mm -hmm. Those of us who went through that diversity training together, 40 years later, Greg, we are connected. Our hearts are connected. There's something about being vulnerable, taking risks, and coming out of it with uh, a refreshed heart that makes all the difference in the world. That makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. Uh, and I think it's a unique but, but extremely powerful experience that you describe as well. I, you know, one of the things that struck me about When We Rise and just learning the, the stories, I knew the names and the stories of people individually, but I had no idea that all of those stories converged in sort of the same decade. And I thought it was, I'll say, miraculous how people like you and Roma and Cleve and Gilbert and then eventually... Harvey all came together to create this movement that has done some extraordinary things. That's wonderful to hear, Greg. And when we were going through the experience, we were not so greatly received. The people that you just mentioned were considered kind of really, really leftist and not the centrists who could work with. You know, it's, it's interesting in our development as a community, Greg, and what, how the pendulum swings in terms of how we see ourselves in relation to power and uh, the human rights of people in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Well, getting back to your story, uh, you know, as I look back on it now, just again, from getting a glimpse of it, and it's really just a glimpse in that miniseries, one of the things I was left with was how much you endured. I don't know anybody else in my life who could have survived all of the challenges from you know, a horrific loss while you were in the military and then coming to San Francisco and struggling with trying to find place and community. And then the AIDS crisis hit. How did you do that? How did you survive that? Uh, Greg, my answer is uh, I, I did it by the grace of God. And I didn't know that I would survive it. I did not know all of those challenges you presented were just devastating to me. Um, and I, I often say that, you know, the pieces of my broken heart are just distributed across uh, the entire country. Mm. I, I think what we saw, Greg, because there's been wonderful joy in that life as well. But I think Hollywood kind of like, the, the stories that uh, were uh, um, the saddest. And when we were talking, Cleve Jones and I were having a discussion a couple weeks ago, and he said, you know, Ken, the one thing that's really missing from the series is your infectious laughter. He says it, the whole show was kind of like a drag or pull down, and people don't understand or know how much I enjoy laughing and how I think that that laughing has uh, helped me to heal and also my, my coming to grips with my own spirituality, Greg. It's, it's been hell for me um, because I think that's the way the system is designed. But uh, I'm finally at that place where I understand spirituality as opposed to religion and I, I understand that all of my life experiences have been for a reason. I have grown to be uh, tremendously uh, strong. And um, it's only because of my search for God and my feeling for so many years, Greg, 
that God has turned his back on me. Mm-hmm. And although I was doing everything possible to show my love for him, that uh, I was such a loser that not even he uh, could help me. Uh, ever since I was exposed again as that 12-year-old, I had prayed to God, please change me. Please change me. I don't want to be like this. I don't know what I want to be, but I know that I don't want to be like this. Please change me. Please change me. And over the years, I've learned that God had no intention of changing me, that he had created me just like I am, Greg, to be doing just what I'm doing right now, which is being present, authentic, and transparent. Um, yeah, I think that kind of mm. gets at it. And, and I... I can't tell you how much I need God every single second of my day. I I say it's like glory to glory. Um, I went through a period of about four years where my mother had been diagnosed with uh, Alzheimer's. And one of the things she would do is call me every couple of minutes and ask me to pray for her. There's something about old black women that just love when their sons can pray for them. And of course, I'd be at work or I'd be doing whatever I'm doing, but I would always stop and pray for her. And for the longest time, I thought that she was just calling me every minute because she had forgotten that we just talked. Mm -hmm. What I have learned is how that prayer was for that minute and that she needed my prayers in this brand new minute. And so I got a sense of, uh, of what it is to need God from moment to moment in your life. Well, I think one of the greatest tragedies of homophobia is the struggle that so many people, men and women go through, gay men and women go through, where they're forced to reconcile their faith that they've grown up with, with their personal discovery of who they are. And they're forced to make a choice that either they reject who they are and maintain allegiance to the faith that they grew up with or reject their faith and pursue their own identity. And we lose a lot. Yes, Uh, we do. We lose a lot. And I think that's one of the horrible manifestations of homophobia, particularly in religion. Yes, it is, Greg. And it's also a part, I don't know if you're noticing this or not, but there's this air of rage that people are feeling all over America. Uh, The thing about uh, rage while driving and the expressions of rage and just, um, it's very unsettling. And I have come to believe that our spirituality is calling us, but because of our bad experiences and what we heard and experienced in the church, we don't want to explore that avenue. So there's this tremendous conflict because your spirit is saying, come to me, but your reality has not allowed that to happen. Does that make any sense? It it absolutely does. We're going to take a music break, and you'll recognize this song from our own use of it on this show, but it was originally one of the theme songs for the ABC miniseries When We Rise that featured the story of Ken Jones. And I think it serves tonight as a beautiful tribute to him. The original version of the song was performed by the always amazing Andra Day. But tonight I'd like to share a cover of the song by a young vocalist named Stephen Scassia. You're broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can find the fighter.
silence isn't quiet And it feels like it's getting hard to breathe And I know you feel like dying But I promise we'll bring the world to its feet And move mountains Bring it to its feet And Just joining us, you're listening to Alpi News in Depth here on KRCB, the North Bay's NPR station. I'm Greg Moralia. Tonight, we're celebrating the life of Ken Jones, a wonderful human being and an incredible activist. Ken passed away last month after a long battle with cancer. In 2017, I had a chance to sit down with him and talk about his life. Here's the rest of our conversation. Well, you know, you've seen a lot of history happen, and I think arguably, at least in my time, the last eight years in terms of gains in, in our LGBT civil rights movement has really been tremendous. What's it's that ex- been tremendous, and just with the whip of a pen, this new administration is just taking every single one of them back. It's the most amazing thing to sit here and witness. But I'm encouraged because I heard Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader saying yesterday, she says, you know, the pendulum swings. And that was her entire thought. The pendulum swings. Does that give you comfort? It does. It does, Greg. Uh, Things are, you know, it's not looking good for us right now on some level with this new administration and the rights and human dignity that we've all come to to own. Um, It's like at every opportunity it's being taken away from us. And I am encouraged by groups like uh, Rise and Resist and Black Lives Matter. We have to do something. And you're right, Greg. It's time to channel this rage into something to save us. I think one of the tough parts or one of the challenges of this, um, I'll call it the new movement or the the reemergence of the movement is that there are a lot of particularly young people who have not lived through what you have lived through. They've not witnessed uh, all that it took to bring the gains in the last eight years. They have no appreciation for that whatsoever. And so the threats, they, they're not seeing the threats. Uh, I know. I know we've done such a good job that they don't feel the threat. And that's, that's, that's problematic. 
because the threats are still there. The walls are still there. In many states, you can still lose your job. Yeah, two-thirds of the country, that's the case. Uh, you know, I think there was this great sense of gain with marriage equality, and on so many levels, that's true. It was a huge gain, and it set the stage for uh, everything else. But we haven't, we haven't accomplished anything else. And the idea that you can be married on a Sunday and then go show up to work and be fired on Monday in the, in the majority of states in this country is unacceptable. But, but there's, still, there's still energy around trying to overturn the marriage decision. So those threats are really real, and I just don't think enough people that see and recognize that threat. And I'm not sure how we work through that either, Greg. I, I think that some of the younger kids, and I don't want to stereotype them, but so many of them... Um, just want to fit in. They don't necessarily want to identify as gay or be in gay bars or gay restaurants, and that's a part of our reality that is changing. Sure, sure. So, so think about the movement today. Uh, what should we be doing? How should we reconstruct it to make it effective in protecting what we have uh, from loss and earning those additional gains that we need? I believe that a consequence of this uh, Trump generation is that, and it's amazing to me, in 2017, to recognize community organizing. It was a lot different in the 70s and 80s. Just the social media adds another whole dimension to our community organizing and community education. And uh, I am hopeful that this next generation, they're going to come through, Greg. I know I'm seeing this next generation at marches. Um, well, the interesting thing is so many of the young kids now are biracial. Mm-hmm. And so this, as it's just a natural occurrence that the biracial kids don't understand the racism thing. And they are turning out in great numbers. They do know how to demonstrate. And I'm just loving how they've kind of changed the way demonstrations are done. Now there's so much more musical, so much more rhythm. Uh, there's so much more life than uh, the seriousness that we brought to it. But the demonstrations are important. Uh, do you think that, that people need to still be out and visible and in public and carrying the signs and marching as you did? It is now more important than ever. You know, we've got to demonstrate our our numbers, um, and we're doing that well. And, you know, we're having some wonderful moments. That Women's March thing just totally added another dimension to to what it means in terms of activism. And uh, we're looking at it occur all over America. And it's, it's exciting to watch because we've got to do something. So it's not just about having a presence on social media. It's about still making yourself visible. What about Pride this year? What, you know, as I'm thinking about opportunities coming up to make ourselves visible, how should we be using the 2017 Pride celebration uh, to get our messaging out? Well, I understand there's a great deal of conversation as we speak. Actually, I've seen a couple of um, messages during our conversation about gay pride in June in San Francisco. Um, The city of Los Angeles has decided to not really have pride, but instead it's going to be a a, uh, rise and resist movement. And so here in San Francisco, I understand there's some discussion about the rise and resist movement being the second contingent in the Gay Pride on the last Sunday in June in San Francisco. Uh, The first group is always the Dykes on Bikes. And then they want to have a contingent of uh, Rise and Resist. And also, Greg, what I am a little concerned with is on the 12th of June, most big cities are having their Rise and Resist marches. And I'm certainly hoping that we will do something here in San Francisco because the media will be there. 
they are certainly expecting to see something from San Francisco on the 10th of June as it is happening all over the country. So I hope that we'll be able to um, not miss an ideal opportunity. I had a conversation just before our conversation with someone who was a little bit concerned about the resources, and I reminded them, Greg, that in New Orleans there are three or four parades a day, and surely we can uh, coordinate two in a month. I think it's doable, and I think we have to do it. And um, it's our opportunity as LGBTQ and our allies to let the nation know we're in this thing with you, that we're all under attack here. Unions, we're with you. School systems, we're with you. Workers, we're with you. We are, we are you, and we stand together with you. So um, I'm looking forward to a June just full of uh, celebrations and, and pride, and mm. I think it's so important that we not let people think for a moment that the battle is over. It is not over. We are still under attack. The finish line is not even in sight, I would argue. <laughs> yeah. So talk about life today, Ken. Uh, what are you doing? <laughs> Where's it taking you next? <laughs> well, I just uh, termed out of my um, primary gig. I was on the, uh, what is it called now? It's the police citizen review board after the shooting of the guy at the uh, Fruitvale station I was part of the formation of this official body to um, help BART um, monitor and change its police behaviors and policies Greg I've been through most of the training that all the BART police have been through it's been a wonderful experience and uh, we've been talking about how they can do their job and keep us safe and at the same time um, when we send our kids off to school or work we want to be sure they're going to come home alive and so we've been intensely working with police officers and the leadership to help change the culture because things are changing about law enforcement and what's important uh, about law enforcement. But now I'm uh, working with brides and grooms from all over the world, Greg, who decide that they want to get married here in San Francisco. About half of them want to be married in City Hall now that it's been... Uh, totally redone and decked out. It's just a wonderful space. And the other half want the uh, Golden Gate Bridge as a backdrop. And I work with these couples to create their own unique wedding ceremony in the city and county of San Francisco. And it is just great for me to be around that kind of energy. Love is a great thing. Remember? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Wow. That, that's... And I love being around that energy and working with people from all over the country. It's so interesting, the cultural stuff uh, that's going on. I'm having the ball. I'm having just a great time. Good for I you. thought this would be more of a quiet time for me, but it's not. And uh, I, I, I'm very, very happy. And what about life in the movement? How are you staying connected and involved with that? Um, you know, Greg, I'm in far more than I thought I would. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm making maximum use of, uh, Facebook and Facebook messengering. And yeah, I am still in many, many conversations. Um, yeah, Terrific. I guess I have become an old, uh, what we used to call in the old days, a mover and shaker. That's great. Where can people go to follow your work? How can they get connected with you? Uh, actually, my Facebook account is really the place to be. Great. And we'll put a link on our website at OutbeatNews.com. You can go there and get connected with Ken Jones. Yesterday, I hit the milestone, Greg, and I, I'm wondering how long it can stay there. I was at 1,000 friends, exactly 1,000. Well, that is a milestone. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. I think the more people that watch When We Rise, 
the more people are going to uh, look for you out there. That's great. And share some of the most wonderful stories in the world, Greg. I am hearing from people who are impacted by this on just a number of levels. The veterans, I'm particularly moved by all the parents who have gone with their transgender kids through the high school setting, and some are now in college. And I'm from the movement where... You know, when we first started talking about transgenders, it was trying to get them off the streets. Their their life goals were kind of limited, and it was kind of just about survival and having shelter. And all of a sudden, there's possibility and hope. And these parents have stuck by their kids, and uh, they're going through what other um, college students are going through. It's a wonderful story of of the parents who have supported their kids. Ten-year-olds who understand transgender and are willing to go through it with their classmates. Mm -hmm. It's the exact opposite of my experience. You know what I mean? Yep. And that they take their entire class through their transition with them. It's like, wow, this is absolutely beautiful. Gives you hope, doesn't it? It does. It does that all of us can be real participants, all of us, equal participants in the American dream and North American life, hope, and opportunity. Greg, we can do this. I know we can. Well, I appreciate your optimism. Uh, But more importantly, I really just want to say thank you for all of the sacrifices, uh, blood, sweat, and tears that you've given over the years that made my coming out in 2004 much easier. Oh, well, I appreciate that so much, Greg. Thank you so much. In 2018, Ken Jones had a chance to speak at a benefit for the Swag Foundation in San Francisco. Here's a bit of what he had to say. I'm so glad to be in your company as you rise. Rise above the situations and circumstances of growing up black and gay and straight white America. Because when we rise together... We can destroy those massive walls of racism, hatred, homophobia, transphobia, and our number one enemy, misandry, which is the fear of our African-American men trying to live and survive in white North America. It has been more than 54 years since the Civil Rights Act of 1964. 54 years, that's 19,710 days. And you know what? African Americans in North America are still not free. Colin Kaepernick knows that we certainly aren't free to exercise our First Amendment rights of protest. African Americans are still on a lonely island of poverty (coughs) in a vast ocean of material prosperity Dr. King said 55 years ago. Right now and today, African Americans are still languishing in the corners of American society and finding themselves exiled in their own land. And you know what, brothers? I'm getting old. I'm growing weary. And I'm growing tired. Tired of trusting the system for the change that is not happening, the change that is not coming, the change that is not on the way. And now what do we do? In this discourse of the battle of the powerful and the disenfranchised, it is exactly what it is. And now, what do we do? I'm getting old, growing weary, and getting tired. Truth be told, I'm about to explode. (laughs) So I'd like to make a pact here this evening to always include two words when we proclaim that black lives matter. From this point forward, let's always say to me, say to me, black lives matter to me. Black lives matter to me. What does that mean? It means that we must demonstrate it in our hearts. We must own it. 
Make it part of our luggage as we travel daily from here to there. Let's commit to lead a life that speaks loudly. Black lives matter to me. Live it and let it rest upon your heart. One of the more important lessons I've learned on this journey is that legislation, white papers, proclamations, and executive orders, they cannot and they do not change people's hearts. We change people's hearts not through any Herculean interventions. No. We change people's hearts when we are present, when we are authentic, and when we are transparent. Let us remember on this evening what really unites each and every one of us here. We are the social change agents working together in the struggle for human dignity and worth for all. Let me close with the final paragraph of President Obama's first inaugural address. And I'm pleased to read it because he could not give you the emphasis I had because they would have impeached him. <laughs> he said, America, in the face of our common dangers, in this winter of our hardship, let us remember these timeless words with hope and virtue. Let us brave once more the icy currents and endure what storms may come. Let it be said by our children's children that when we were tested, we refused to let this journey end. That we did not turn back, nor did we falter. And with eyes fixed on the horizon and God's grace upon us, we carried forth that great gift of freedom and delivered it safely to future generations. To the singers with the gold, best of luck in all that you attempt, all that you will accomplish, and all that you will achieve as you are present, authentic, and transparent. Ken Jones passed away after losing a battle with cancer at the age of 70 on January 13, 2021. I had a chance to meet Ken several times, even once having him talk to one of my college classes. I will always remember his warmth, his beaming smile, and his optimism that has always personally inspired me. This show is dedicated to the life and work of Ken Jones. Tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio, the North Bay's NPR station. In the meantime, have a great week. And thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia. Our shows are available for on-demand play anytime on our website at outbeatnews.com and on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now on iHeartRadio. Find links to subscribe at OutBeatNews.com. Support for OutBeat Radio and KRCBFM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free-range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air-chilled, non-GMO, locally raised in Sonoma County, with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at RockyAndRosie.com. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Afropop is next. <laughs>